Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. This week, I want to address an important behavior that can help us live happily together, and that's forgiveness. No matter how solid our relationships are with one another, we will eventually be in the position where we'll have the opportunity to forgive one another. The question is, what will we do with this opportunity? This was an issue that concerned Jesus' disciples as they lived together in community, a community that would one day become the church. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if my brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Now, Peter probably thought he was being generous, suggesting that he should forgive someone seven times. That's a lot. But Jesus comes back and says that he should forgive 77 times. And some translations of the verse say 70 times seven. Anyway, an essentially unlimited number of times. We shouldn't even count the number of times we have to forgive somebody. We find an early Bible story dealing with forgiveness in the Genesis story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, from an early age, had trouble with his older brothers. Now, this isn't an unfamiliar scenario to anyone who has siblings. Joseph, the baby of the family, is favored by his father. His father shows his favoritism toward Joseph at one point by gifting him with a special fancy robe. This is the story that inspired the famous Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and the country song, A Coat of Many Colors. By the way, the Bible doesn't say that the coat was colorful, but that's a nice embellishment. Well, out of jealousy, Joseph's brothers decide to take him out and kill him. Joseph and his family live in Canaan, which would one day become Israel. Through a rather involved plot, the brothers decide not to kill him, but to sell him into slavery. They sell him to a group of traveling slave traders, who in turn sell him to the household of the pharaoh in Egypt. Through his ability to interpret dreams, Joseph ends up in a position of great political power in Egypt. Years after Joseph's brothers sold him, a famine strikes Canaan, and Joseph's family, including his father and brothers, are in a desperate situation. And they're forced to go to Egypt for help. Through prudent planning and management devised by Joseph, Egypt has an abundance of grain. The brothers appear before Joseph to ask for help. Now, they don't recognize him, recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them. This is a complicated story plot that you'll have to read to get the full effect. But the bottom line is that Joseph forgives his brothers and saves his family from the famine. But despite Joseph's generosity, the brothers fear that he will take revenge upon them after their father Jacob dies. And the story ends 
with this scene after Jacob's death. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave us this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. Now, this story doesn't tell us whether Jacob really left instructions for Joseph to forgive his brothers. That might have been something they made up. Nonetheless, he does. From Joseph's character, we assume it would not have made any difference. But his brothers have a hard time believing that Joseph could be so forgiving. Their attitude demonstrates just how rare true forgiveness is. We're surprised sometimes when people can really forgive. The Joseph incident reveals something important about forgiveness. The person doing the forgiving is in a position of power over those they can forgive. For it to be forgiveness, the forgiver has a choice to forgive or not to forgive. Forgiving is a kind of giving, giving something to someone that they don't deserve. Joseph was in a position where he could have had his brothers imprisoned or even executed. His br brothers deserved some kind of punishment for what was a serious crime, attempted murder, or human trafficking, we'd call it today. Forgiveness is intention with justice. For Joseph, though, restoring his relationship with his family was more important than getting back at them. Jesus and his disciples, being students of Jewish scripture, would have been familiar with this story. But because forgiving goes contrary to our normal human impulses, they want to know the limits of forgiveness that God requires. Thus their question, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister? What's the minimum requirement? I'm sure they didn't get the answer that they wanted from Jesus. Seventy times seven was Jesus' idiomatic way of saying that there's no limit to our need to forgive. That shouldn't even be a question. But not many people are as gener generous as Joseph was. For that reason, Jesus tells them the following parable to help his friends understand. He said, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, 
one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him, and he couldn't pay. His lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. And when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will do also to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother and your sister from your heart. This is what I call a hard teaching, especially the last part where Jesus says that God will hand us over to be tortured if we don't forgive. Forgive from the heart. In the first example in the parable, the rich man has power over his debtor. The 10,000 talents that the debtor owes is a huge sum of money, more than the man could have made in 10 lifetimes. The first impulse of the rich man, who is understandably upset, is to sell the slave and his family to someone else at a profit. And his family probably would have ended up in a bad situation. But after the man pleads with him, the rich man has pity on him and forgives the huge debt. Now the second incident occurs. The slave who had just had his debt forgiven comes upon someone who owes him a hundred denarii, which is a piddling amount, not even worth dealing with. But the slave who had been forgiven is merciless. The man has him thrown into prison until he repays the debt. Well, the ironic thing about debtors' prisons is that any sentence is likely a life sentence because you can't earn the money while you're in prison. If you're poor, it's unlikely that anyone in your family will be able to come up with the money either. Now, finally, when the rich man who had forgiven him the original debt finds out how unforgiving the slave has been, he has him thrown into prison to be tortured until he pays. Well, as you can see, that's tantamount to a death sentence. He wouldn't last long under the torture. He'd never be able to pay the debt back. Well, now the application of this parable. The rich Lord sets the benchmark for forgiveness for us. Despite his initial anger, he allows compassion to rule his heart. He freely gives up something of great value when he doesn't have to and wouldn't be expected to. Some might even consider him foolish or a soft touch for what he does. In our lives, it would be like forgiving someone 
who cheated out of us out of our life savings. And it just doesn't have to do with money. It could be forgiving someone who has murdered a family member of ours. That would be hard to do. God sets a high bar for forgiveness because that's the way God operates. God's forgiveness is infinite. It's part of God's character. And that's good news for us. In the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we beg God to forgive us our debts or our sins as we forgive those who are in debt to us or sin against us. Thinking about this radical call to forgiveness can lead us into some really difficult places. In one of those dark places lurks a haunting question. Should Jewish survivors of the Holocaust forgive their Nazi tormentors and killers? Foremost Holocaust survivor and thinker Eli Wiesel, who in 2000 pushed Germany to ask forgiveness of the Jewish people, rejected a mass Jewish forgiveness of the Nazis. In 2006 interview, Wiesel said, I am asked occasionally, do you forgive? Who am I to forgive? I'm not God. I don't believe in collective guilt. No, I cannot forgive. Wiesel, a great humanitarian, shows that when talking about forgiveness, we need to focus on personal experience, not historical hypotheticals. For most of us, most of the time, we will find ourselves in the position of the slave in the parable who refuses to forgive a minor debt owed to him. The majority of things that we will be called upon to forgive are little matters in the grand scheme of of things. Perhaps I find out that someone at work that I think is my friend said some unkind things about me. My mother's cousin carried a grudge against my mother for 50 years because my mother had been willed an inexpensive bookcase by her aunt that her cousin coveted it. They never spoke again, and she carried her sense of wrong to her grave, bearing the weight of a piece of furniture on her back for the rest of her life. These little what I call unforgivenesses show in us. We show right away the grudges and the hurts that we hold against those who have wronged us. Whether it's our tone or our body language, unforgiveness is hard to hide. This commandment has an especially sharp point because it's directed to those nearest to us. It's directed at the people that we work with every day, the people in our homes, people who annoy us, wrong us, and generally drive us crazy. These grudges, large or small, hamper our relationships at work, with our friends, and within our families. The only way to heal these hurts is to forgive. Still, we often hold on to these grievances. Many people interpret the rich ruler in our parable as God. That makes the last act of the parable confusing and a little scary. While he was gracious in the beginning, he ends up doling out a horrible retribution. 
he has the guy tortured is the message that the reason we should forgive other people is so that God won't send us to hell for eternal torment? I think there's a better way to look at this. When we refuse to forgive, forgive from the heart. When we carry grudges and memories of hurts on our souls and in our hearts, we are condemning ourselves to our own kind of hell. We alienate ourselves from the people we love. We are letting bitterness fester and poison us from within. I know a lot of bitter old men and women whose lives look a lot like hell to me. Emily Dickinson wrote a poem about the self-condemnation we face when we hold on to wrongs and the redemption we can find when we let them go. She writes, My heart was heavy, for its trust had been abused, its kindness answered with foul wrong. So turning gloomily from my fellow men, one summer Sabbath day I strolled among the green mounds of the village burial place, where pondering how human love and hate find one sad level, and how soon or late, wronged and wrongdoer, each with meekened face and cold hands folded over a still heart, past the green threshold of our common grave, whither all footsteps tend, whence none depart. Awed for myself, and pitying my race, our common sorrow like a mighty wave, swept all my pride away, and trembling, I forgave. Dickinson gives us a good reminder. Life is short. Forgive before it's too late. Think about the grudges you're holding, and let them go. We don't have to carry our grievances to the grave, God gave us the ability to forgive. Let us be ready to forgive the sins of others as God has already forgiven us. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God love you and forgive you. And may you forgive others and live in peace. <laughs>